Well, good morning. My name is Al Barth, and I'm the newest pastor on staff. Uh, and it's been really fun to join this staff and become uh, really a part of this church. Uh, and I continue to be impressed with the, the depth and the spirituality and the loving nature of, uh, of this church. This morning, uh, what I want to do is I want to read to you a passage from the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 and following. It'll be projected on the screens, but you can turn uh, in a Bible if you've got one in front of you or on, on one of your phones and follow along uh, if you will. So it's Matthew chapter 5, verses uh, 12 and uh, Matthew chapter th- uh, 4, verses 12 and following. Here, if you will, the reading of God's holy and inspired word. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which, is, which was by the lake, in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, and for they were fishermen. And he said, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, by the way, these guys would be later be, be known as the Sons of Thunder, okay? Maybe the first motorcycle gang in, in Scripture, I'm not sure. But uh, they, were, they were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, the paralytics, and he healed them. And large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Let's pray as we come to the word this morning. Our Father, we thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us, not only in creation, but also through the written word, that we might know you, that we might know who you are and what you are really like, and that we might know of your love for us. Lord, even as we look at these, word, these words this morning, these uh, short, short verses, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would move throughout this room and turn our hearts and our minds to you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, there's three things I want to talk to you about this morning. One, this phrase, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is near. So I want to try to help, help you understand that, help us understand that, what that means. Second, I want to talk about the relationship of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man or the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of, of this world, what that relationship looks like. And third, I want to briefly talk a little bit about God's call to life in the kingdom. Now, I think it's interesting uh, that as Jesus began his public ministry, 
he starts by talking about the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. They're really the same, the same thing in, in Scripture. But he comes with his words and he says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Twice in this, in this passage, the kingdom is mentioned as kind of the focal point of, of Christ's teaching and preaching ministry. But we don't usually think about that. We usually talk about his focus was the gospel. But it was the gospel, the kingdom, actually, that was the focus of, of, of his teaching and preaching. The second time it's mentioned, he says he's preaching the good news about the kingdom, or the good news of, of the kingdom. Just In just a few verses, another chapter over, Jesus would teach his disciples how to pray, teaches us how to pray. And what I find interesting is that centered to that prayer is he, pray, he, he teaches them to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I tend to quote the King James because that's the way I memorized it. But your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what we're supposed to pray about. Later in that same uh, sermon, he'll, he'll, he'll encourage all the people that have gathered on the mount to hear him. And he'll say, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. As you work through your, your way through Matthew, there'll be a whole, he'll give us a whole series of parables about the kingdom. The kingdom's like this, the kingdom's like this, the kingdom's like this, trying to help us understand what the kingdom is and what that means for us here on earth. The kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. Why so much emphasis on the kingdom or on this idea that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is near. Several weeks ago when David was preaching, I think it was his message when he was preaching on the in incarnation, he mentioned the fact that throughout much of the latter half of the 19th century and much of the 20th century, a, um, one of the prevailing views of the world, uh, at least on a popular level, was a form of what's called philosophical materialism. And the basic idea there, and by the way, if you're a philosophy professor, don't skewer me on this, because this is a very layman's understanding of, uh, of this philosophy, but essentially the idea was that this world is, is, is a closed system. There is no such thing as the supernatural. The only things that are really real are what you can see, or what you can hear, or what you can smell, or what you can touch, whatever you can observe or detect physically. That's what it is. There is, there is no, nothing else other, other than this. And that philosophy has, has prevailed in many ways on a popular level up until really the early 2000s with the rise of postmodernism. Now more and more people are rejecting that, that, that philosophy. But it's still, uh, people cling to it in, in our world. Well, God in the Bible, through his scriptures, provides us with a very different conception of the world. It's a different understanding of what is real and what reality is really like. Reflected in this passage and elsewhere in, in Scripture is the understanding that, that there are really two worlds. Both are real, but there are two worlds that we have to deal with, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And although one is temporal and will be pretty short-lived, the other one is eternal and actually uh, will last forever. You know, there was a time when, um, when these two kingdoms were in much closer contact than, than, than what they are now. In the garden, we're given the picture of Adam and Eve living in intimate communion with God. And it's implied that God would come and literally walk in the garden in the cool of the evening with Adam and Eve. They experienced this intimate communion with him. 
Believe me, Adam had no problems with understanding the realities of the physical world as well as the spiritual world. He experienced it. He saw it. He, he, he knew God in a way that we have not yet known him, but that we will know him. But when he, when he decided to believe the lie of the serpent, the evil one, and turn away from God and go his own way, reality changed. That was the point at which uh, a, the relationship between Adam and the Lord God Almighty was broken. And from that time on, throughout human history, that, that, that division, that, that, uh, that, uh, that, that break became greater and greater and greater. We see it actually by the time of Noah, I think it's about 600 years later, by the time of Noah, essentially no one on earth knew God except for Noah and his family. They'd all turn their backs on him. And so God brings about the flood. Uh, but, this, but as the story unfolds, in, particularly in the Old Testament, God does not abandon man. God keeps coming in. He keeps kind of breaking into the reality of, of man's existence. Um, my wife has had a couple of uh, saltwater fish tanks over the years. And they're, they're, I, if you've ever had a saltwater tank, they're amazing. I mean, the fish and the, the plants, the anemones, and you know, all, you know, all, all that kind of stuff is, is crazy. But they require unbelievable attention and maintenance. But one of the things I've watched over the years is that as, as she would develop these things, there were times at which things were kind of going wrong within the tank. And so then she would have to reach into the tank, her arm would come in, and she'd readjust a coral, move it around, or move a rock, or maybe free a fish, I don't know, whatever was happening there. But that's kind of the image that I think we have between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is so much greater, but what God does throughout the history, redemption history, is he keeps reaching into our existence to awaken man back to the reality. Noah's the first, but you see it there in Abraham, you see it in Joseph, you see it in Jacob, you see it um, in Daniel in the lion's den, or his friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, I think I got that right, okay, and, and in, in the fire they see someone walking with him. This is God coming back into human existence over and over and over again, and even though the basic story of the development of the Jewish nation and of mankind is that we're always tending to move away, God at times interferes. He reaches into the tank, so to speak. To, to, to reawaken us to, to, the, to the reality. And there's plenty of examples of this. I'm, you know, some of you who know your Bible, remember Elisha and his eyes are open to the fact that the, the hosts of heaven are fighting the battle around him. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of examples uh, of that. And, but, and many back then, like many now, perhaps most, were living in a in, in, as if the supernatural doesn't exist as if there is, there is no God, or even if there is, that is surely not involved in existence as, as we know it. But then comes Jesus, and everything changes. This point at which he comes, this point of his, as his ministry begins, marks a change in the entire history of, man, of mankind. A number of years ago, I was sitting in an outdoor cafe in Budapest, Hungary. I don't know if you've ever been to Budapest, but it's, it's one of my favorite cities in the world. But I was sitting outside, and I was talking to, uh, to an individual by the name of Zeno. 
And I didn't really know who Zeno was, but I would kind of learn even, even during this, this, this conversation. But I'd asked a number of friends of mine to introduce me to uh, Hungarians that were not, that were not Christians. Because I wanted to understand the hearts and minds of a hung- Hungarians and what drives them and what, you know, how, how could you communicate the gospel in, into that, that existence. So here I am talking to this guy, Zeno, and big, tall, good-looking guy. And as, and as I'm sitting there, you know, I began to realize that, that he's something more than what I thought he might be. As particularly adolescent girls would walk along the street, I could literally see them poking each other and pointing him out. Well, it turns out that Zeno is a little bit like what Tom Cruise was 20 years ago, okay? He was a film star. He was a major actor in plays, that kind of thing. He was the star of an evening soap opera, and he'd been an Olympic gold medalist on the water polo team for Hungary. This guy's a big guy, okay? And so it was interesting that I got a meeting with him. But we're sitting talking, and at first he would only talk through a translator, because I think he was wondering if I had some sort of ulterior motive or whatever. But as, as the conversation flowed on about 20 minutes into it, all of a sudden we didn't need a translator. He was perfectly fluent in, in, in English. I was not in Hungarian. But as we're talking, there was one point at which I asked him, Zeno, I, I want to understand what's going on in the hearts and minds of Hungarians. Why is it that so many young Hungarians are taking their lives, committing suicide? The week before that I, that I came there, five different young men had jumped off of a bridge. It's, it's literally, it literally became known as Suicide Bridge because you could walk up in the superstructure and you could take your own life. But at that point, Hungary was the third leading nation in suicide across the world. Only Sweden and Japan had more suicides than Hungary did. So I'm asking Zeno, why is it that so many young Hungarians are reaching this point of despair and taking their lives? And, you know, he, he's a pretty, pretty smart guy. But he said, listen now, it's, it, it's not hard to understand. But he said, if there is no God, now he wasn't a theologian, okay, but if there is no God, if the misery and suffering in your life begins to significantly outweigh any times of joy or excitement or happiness, there comes a point where that misery becomes so great that you decide, maybe it's just better to take my life and go off into the nothingness. If God doesn't exist, that's the option. That, that, was, that was his kind of take. So then he kind of flipped the question back, back on me, and he said, he said Al, really, there's three things I'd love to know. One, I would love to know if there is a God. Really. I, I don't know that there's enough reason to believe in God, but I would love to know if there really is a God. And if there is a God, I would love to know what that God is really like, what he, she, or it really is. And the third thing I'd want to know is, does that God have anything to do with reality as I know it, with the social the situation, with the suffering in the world, you know, all those kinds of things? Uh, I can't really tell you the conclusion of the story because I really don't know uh, what, what happened to Zeno, but... I do know this, that by the end of that interview, who was only supposed to give me 30 minutes, so he, he was going to rush off, but we, we had sat there and talked for an hour. At the end of the hour, even though he had to leave, he, he said, Al, is there any way that we can meet again? And my response was, sure. You know, I'm, I'm here fairly often. Be glad to meet you. Unfortunately, I never met him again. But I think the Lord began to do something in Zeno's heart even, even that day. There are good answers to all three of those questions, by the way. And if you don't have the answer to those questions, you need to get those answers because your kids, the next generation, are asking those questions. 
irrespective of what you experience with spirituality, the, the, we are losing the next generation. The 18 to 35-year-olds are becoming de-churched. They are literally leaving faith in Christ, even though they may have experienced it in, in some form. So we've got we've to answer those, 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 those questions. When the text that we have before us, there's a reference to the people living in Naphtali and Zebulun. You may have never heard of those places. But it describes them as people living in darkness, under the shadow of death. That's the very thing I'm referring to. I think much of the world at this point is living in darkness. They're living either with no knowledge of God or as if God doesn't exist. Well, the world at the time of Christ's coming was very much like that. The gap between this kingdom of God and the kingdom of man was so wide that there was almost no true knowledge of God on earth. And it was at that time, in the context of so much darkness and so little of understanding, that God sends Jesus, his son, and he sends him in a human form in order to awaken us, in order for us to begin to understand the realities of the world, what the world really is. God breaks through the veil, as it were, to reveal who he really is and to awaken us, men, women, and children, to the true truth. I've always found a certain irony in the Christmas story. Um, and although now we, it's kind of known worldwide, you know, when Jesus first came, almost no one knew what was happening. I mean, other than you got some shepherds in the field that get the angelic announcement, Mary and Joseph knew who he was. I mean, Simeon and Anna, you know, when, when, they, when he went to the temple, they knew who he was. The Magi would come to the, you know, from the east because they knew who he was, but almost no one else knew. I mean, there's, you know, the, the Jewish scholars get a glimpse of who he was when about age 12 when he comes to the temple. But really, it's not until this juncture, when Jesus enters into his ministry, that it begins to be known what's happening. And Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is near. That is, the kingdom of God is beginning to invade the world as we know it. That's what's taking place at this ministry point, okay? You, you, need, you need to catch this. This is the change point. This is the point where those two kingdoms are coming back into proximity, like with Adam. Now, the, the, the odd thing is that Jesus says the time is fulfilled. That's in, in, in uh, Gospel of Mark, he precedes his statement about uh, um, repent for the, and, and believe the gospel or repent because the kingdom of God is near. He says that the, the time is fulfilled. The era between Adam's loss of intimacy and our being able to begin to regain that intimacy has come to an end. And this is a new era that's being inaugurated. What Jesus is saying in this statement, the kingdom of God is near, is that we can have access to that kingdom. And I'll say more about that in just a minute, but uh, let me talk briefly about the relationship between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man at present, in this present age. Although Jesus inaugurates a new era in which we'll be able to experience the kingdom of God on earth, at least in measure, it actually won't, we won't experience in fullness until Christ's second coming. One of the songs this morning mentioned that very thing. There will come a day when we'll have this unhindered communion, communication with God like Adam, perhaps even better than that. But the present reality that we must deal with is that 
There are two kingdoms that are operative within this world, and they are vying for dominance within our world. They're vying for dominance in the world at large. They're, they're vying for dominance in every country, in every region, in every city, and also within the heart of every single human being. Don't kid yourself. As believers, as those who become, initially become members of the kingdom, we are at war with our old natures. There's a fight within us and within, within all the human institutions between these two entities. And we really see the kingdom of God advance as we see the gospel spread. As it begins to invade human hearts and it begins to change us from selfish, self-centered beings into those who are, who are both loving God as well as demonstrating uh, God's love to the community around us. But as I intimated, that war is not just out there in the world, it's actually in our own hearts. And, the, and we see it reflected in words in scripture like, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Put to death, therefore, that, that which is earthly within you. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Put on the full armor of God. That's all about, those are all references to the battle that we wage with our old natures. Now, recently, Brian, uh, one of the pastors here, has, has uh, been utilizing the, um, a book called Counterfeit Gods, which is a fascinating study, I think, in what it means to deal with competing loyalties within our hearts. And I would encourage all of you to read it. It's essentially about doing battle with the idols that so can easily dominate our lives. And it's illustrative of this battle that is within. I've got to rush on. Third point. God calls us to life in the kingdom, not just to a point of faith, but to a way of living. Jesus comes preaching this very simple message, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And, he, and Matthew characterizes it, that is the good news of the kingdom. Why is it good news? I'll tell you why it's good news. That message of repent for the kingdom of God is near is actually an invitation to us that by turning from our sin and turning back to God, we can enter into membership within the kingdom. We can enter into the family of God. A number of years ago, I was listening to a man by the name of Archie Parrish. I don't know how many of you remember Archie. He actually went to be with the Lord two years ago. But Archie was kind of a key person at the Evangelism Explosion for quite a number of years. But I remember Archie telling his story of how he came to Christ. One night, he had gone to some sort of meeting, revival, I don't know what it was, but the preacher used, uh, cited the verse, John 1.12. And the way I have memorized it is, but as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God, even to them that believe on his name. Well, when that verse was used, it struck a note within Archie, and it resonated in him. And as he thought through that, the reality of that, but as many as received him, or yet as many as received him, that's probably the version that's up there, yep, um, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to them that believe in his name. As that reverberated through him, that night he received Christ. He believed that reality. He goes home, and he begins talking to his sister to share kind of the excitement of what has gone, gone on within him. And she is throwing up objections. Well, wait, wait a minute. What about all the other, other religions? You know, uh, wait a minute. What, what about all the suffering and pain in the world? How can it be their, be their God? And Archie's response over and over and over again was, I don't know about that, but here's what I know. 
But as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the children of God, even to them that, that believe in his name. Another objection. I don't know about that, but I know this much. But as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become children of God, even to them that believe in his name. She was converted that night. And within a few days, both, both of his parents also came to Christ as well. That's the power of becoming part of the family. But that's just the beginning point. Coming to a point of faith is only the beginning. And what Jesus is calling us into is actually a life within the kingdom. As he begins calling his disciples, Simon, or also called Peter, Andrew, the sons of thunder, these guys, he's calling, he's, he's calling to them, not merely repent and believe, but he actually he's saying, come follow me. And of course, in this one, he says, I will make you fishers of men. Now, I like to fish. I actually don't fish very much, and I really don't really know even how to fish anymore. But as a kid, I used to fish, and I, I knew a little bit about fishing in the lakes of Minnesota. And by the way, I'm glad I live in Florida rather than Minnesota. It's a whole lot warmer here. And so Dan was right. You know, if you're north of Georgia, this isn't all that cold. But I understand it feels cold to many of us. But here's, here's what I know about fishing. You have to learn how to fish. And you're not, you don't learn how to fish by reading an instruction manual, by reading a book. Really, the way usually you learn how to fish is you have to go and do it with someone that actually knows how to fish. You know, he or she knows to, how to use the right bait, and, you know, in, in saltwater fishing, you've got to know about tides and what fish swim in what, what water out by the, by, by the uh, Gulf Stream or in the canals or, or whatever. It's a process. That's the process that Jesus invites in, us into. We come to faith in Christ, but then we have to figure out what does it look to live life in the kingdom. And over the next several weeks, you know, a number of the guys here will be bringing messages, working its way through Matthew, that are basically uh, helping us to understand what life in the kingdom looks like. What are the virtues and the purposes and the way in which life is, 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 is lived out. So let me close with this. Let me, let me tell you, if I may, what is really real. There is a God. It's not just a God. It's not just any God. But the God that is real actually is the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Bible. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph. The God who sent his son Jesus Christ in the world. The God that is continuing to work within our world. He is the Lord of all that is. Both things visible and invisible. That God not only created the world, but he created the world for us so that we could experience God's love. And that's the God that wants to experience our love back to him. He intended for us to experience his love for an eternity and for him to enjoy the love that we would return. But we spurned his love. and We rejected his guidance for his life, his law. And in doing so, we introduced untold suffering and misery into our own lives and in, 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 in our societies. And although Adam was guilty of the original sin, and that would affect the entire world, every single one of us are guilty of the same, the, the same nature of sin in our own lives. But here's the good news. We should not despair. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is near. It's available 
you can enter into it. No matter how much you may have messed up your life, no matter how much destruction may be there in your marriage or in your kids' lives or whatever, the kingdom of God is near. Jesus can literally change your lives. It starts by receiving him. It starts by repenting, turning from yourself and your sinful ways to him to follow. Let's pray. Father, it's amazing that you would choose to love us. People that have turned away from you, you would draw us back to yourself. And even as believers now, so often, Lord, we we turn away. We fall short. We're so grateful, Lord, that we can know that the kingdom will come and it will be in it because Jesus died for us, literally made an atonement for us that we could come back into a right relationship with you and really experience your love. Lord, we long for the day when you will come again and where all things will be made right, when we'll experience the kingdom in its fullness, even as Adam and Eve had begun to experience it. Lord, we pray that any of those that don't know you yet would come to that point of turning and come back to you and receive you. But even those who already know, know you, Lord, We pray that you would turn our hearts back to you continually, week after week, month after month, as we try to live out the realities of the kingdom in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.